All right. Thanks, Matt. Um, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to jump into God's Word this morning. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians. Yeah. It's in the New Testament at the end of the acronym, Girls Eat Popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. <laughs> God doesn't eat popcorn. Girls eat popcorn. <laughs> but that works for the acronym. All right. Um, great. So we are still in chapter one of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is a pretty short letter. It is indeed a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul in roughly 60 AD, uh, written to a church in what uh, is now northern Greece called Philippi, uh, the town. And so the first week we learned who the author was. It's the Apostle Paul along with his mentee, Timothy. Uh, we know who the audience is, which is all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And then we heard a greeting as well as a thanksgiving and a prayer um, from Paul about and for these people that he dearly loves. And so now we're getting into sort of the meat of the letter. And just like other Greco-Roman letters of friendship in that day, uh, it would go from author, audience, greeting, and straight into news, updates, the scoop. Uh, let me tell you what's going on with me. And so Paul is about to do that right now. And where he's at, where he's writing from, most likely, because it doesn't say, but where most scholars think he's writing from is Rome towards the end of his career as a missionary, toward the end of his life, um, because he's going to get executed in Rome, um, writing from Rome while he is on house arrest. Um, and you can read about that in the book of Acts. So he is in chains, as in he is fully and completely overseen by and uh, lorded over by Rome and the Roman soldiers as well. And so that's where he is. And so he's writing a letter from that place to his friends, this church in Philippi, who sent a care package for them. Just like Andy shared last week, back in that time, and in, even in some countries today, prisoners weren't taken care of well by the people who were imprisoning them. Um, your friends, your family had to provide for your needs while you're in prison. And that was the case for Paul. And so... If you were in prison and you're writing a letter to your friends, I wonder what it would say. You know, I wonder if it would say something like, hey, still in prison, pray for me to get out soon, or something like that. Uh, but let's, let's see what sort of update Paul gives to his friends here in Philippi. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll read through verse 18. I want you to, to know, brothers and sisters, we'll get to that, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. All right, let's pray. Here, Father, we just come before you humbly and we want to learn. Um, we want to open our hands, want to open our minds, open our hearts to hear from you through your word. I pray that your spirit would speak through your word to us. Lord, help us to listen and help us not to look at the mirror of your word and walk away and forget what we saw, but help us to look at it and go away changed. And only in Jesus' name can we do that. So we pray for that. Amen. Okay, so that's the, that's the update. That's Paul's news. Hey, guys, here we go. But he doesn't reveal very many details. You know, he doesn't say what being in prison is like. He doesn't say, like, how hard it is, like, what his day-to-day life in prison is like. Instead, he just goes straight to the good news. His situation, his imprisonment, his chains have actually been a good thing. But for whom? For whom has this situation been a good thing? For the gospel. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really, actually, turns out, it's actually been a good thing for the gospel. So the difference between Paul and pretty much every other human being, myself included, is that he views the entire world, everything he goes through, through a certain lens. And what is that lens? a gospel lens. You know, he looks at everything that happens in the world out there and into him through gospel-colored glasses. So if we skip ahead to verse 18, we see that deep-seated priority that he has. He says, yeah, yeah, all this is going on. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul's one priority in life is the spread of the good news about Jesus. Period. That's all he cares about. That Jesus is the Savior of the world, not Caesar. You know, in those days, what would be commonly said is Caesar is Lord and Savior. But no, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who died for the sins of the whole world. He rose from the dead three days later and is now offered to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and that one day he will come again to judge every person who ever lived. 
So Paul has gospel priorities. And so he can, from a, from like sincerely he can say, I want you to know, brothers. And side note, that word Adelphoi in this context includes all the siblings in the church. And we know that even just from the book of Philippians later in chapter 4 because it says, he says, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for. And then in the next verse he says, I entreat these two women to agree in the Lord. So this, this word brothers includes the men and women in the church. And so he can sincerely say, I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so he's actually giving them good news right now. You know, he's not just updating them on his bad news. He's giving them a praise report. Guys, guess what? This whole chains thing, this, this imprisonment thing, it got flipped on its head. And it's working for God's plan. And I want us to be careful because, you know, we shouldn't approach this passage thinking to ourselves, man, I... I wish I could be more like Paul. He's such a, I mean, wow, what a guy to be able to look at his life like that. That's not how we should approach this passage. Even Paul wasn't like Paul for most of his life. As we talked about the first week, he he was destroying Christians. That's what he felt his vocation was supposed to be for the rest of his life. Destroy this thing. In the name of God. But something happened to him. He was changed. He was transformed. Jesus grabbed his life and refused to let go. Instead, we should approach this passage wondering how we can allow Jesus to grab hold of our lives. Just like he grabbed hold of Paul's. When Jesus grabs a hold of your life, your priorities change. They just do because of, because of him. Not because of wanting to be like that person, wanting to be like this person. No, it's because Jesus has grabbed a hold of your life and he has not let go. And our priorities don't just get kind of tweaked a little bit. Like, all right, we're heading in the right direction and Jesus kind of course corrects. No, no, no. They get completely turned upside down. And that's what happened to Paul. And so he goes on here, and he explains how the gospel advanced despite his chains. This shows how God can use especially the difficult situations in our lives to accomplish his purposes, especially when we are looking at our lives in a way that we know the transformation that he has brought. You know, when Leon got healed this week, when I went back and visited him, the nurses wouldn't shut up. They, they saw me and they're like, are you, are you the guy who came and prayed for Leon? I was like, yeah. He's like, you guys, this is the guy who came and prayed for Leon and then he woke up. Like they were spreading this news amongst each other. And I was like, dude, we're just praising God. And they're like, that doesn't happen. That's not normal. <laughs> and so even the difficult things in our life can accomplish things that we didn't even think possible. 
And so moving into verse 13, we see this this upside-down reality, this upside-down impact that the gospel had through Paul's chains. So verse 13, it says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So like I said before, he's probably in Rome. And Rome is the center of the known world at this point. The Roman Empire is at its climax. It's at its peak. And Paul understands his entry into Rome differently than his opponents. You know, his opponents, you know, are trying to take down this whole way of Jesus cult. And so they brought him to the authorities. They're accusing him. They're trying to get him taken down. And Paul goes happily and says, yeah, yeah, take me to Rome. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Take me to Rome. They might see it as a victory against this young Christian uh, burgeoning religion. Paul sees it differently. You know, he sees it as he is sneaking his way to the center of the known world. He basically sees himself as a gospel Trojan horse, sneaking his way in. And once you let that gospel out, it's not going to be overcome. And we see in history that that happened, that Rome fell to Christianity. And Paul's ready to let it out and see what happens. And we see here that it says the whole imperial guard, that word is praetorium. We don't know exactly who these people were because we, don't, we can't say for sure 100% where Paul was right now. He's either in Rome or he's in Caesarea or he's in Ephesus. But in each of those places, there would have been a, a group of Roman imperial soldiers. And so if he's in Rome, which is the most likely reality, this would have been Caesar's own personal soldiers, his own bodyguards. And Paul's saying that even Caesar's own bodyguards know that I am here for Jesus. And then later, at the end of this book, Paul's given his goodbyes. He's blowing kisses. He says, uh, no, he doesn't say greet everyone with a holy kiss here, sorry. But he does say greet everyone. He's, he's sending his goodbye greetings. And he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And so here Paul has, has sneakily gotten into Rome. He's let the gospel out of the Trojan horse. And even members of Caesar's family have gotten saved. And so he understands this whole reality differently. He understands that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's advancing, not through power, but through weakness. Paul is giving this report at the beginning of the letter in order to lay out a paradigm that will carry through the rest of the letter. He's not bringing this up just for his own update. He's bringing this up because this is how to live the Christian life. Through weakness. It applies to us too. This is the way of Jesus. We find out just a chapter later. Victory comes through weakness and even suffering. In chapter 2, which we're going to hit in, on Easter Sunday, we find Jesus starting at the top. The eternal Son of God. The second person of the triune Godhead. Descending. Descending giving up those, 
divine privileges in order to become a man, not just a man, but a poor slave status person in a, in a backwater town. And even further, he humbles himself to the point of death and death on a Roman cross. So we see this, this downward trajectory of condescension of the eternal Son of God humiliating himself, humbling himself, taking the path not of power, not of seizing victory because he can, but of emptying himself. And then what do we see? We see the ascension. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Every knee. Those in heaven, those on earth, and under the earth. As in every person who has ever lived, every spiritual being that was created, that has fallen or remained loyal to God, all will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the way of Jesus. The way of weakness. The way of suffering. And Paul adopts the same way. Later in chapter 3, he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then he says that by any means, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. So Paul sees the paradigm laid out by Jesus in emptying himself in laying down his rights. And Paul does the same thing. And that's a paradigm that he sets for our sake. And don't get me wrong. Don't get Paul wrong. You know, he doesn't celebrate his imprisonment for his imprisonment's sake. You know, he's not sitting there on the bench being like, this is awesome, gritting his teeth like, yeah, suffering is good. No, no, he's not afraid to ask for suffering to be taken away. We find out in 2 Corinthians 12 that we don't know what it was, but Paul had some kind of chronic bodily thing going on. He called it a thorn in his flesh. And he also said it was sent by Satan. But he begged God three times to take it away. He said, please, take this away. If you take this away, I can probably do more for you, God. I will, I will be able to reach more people. I will be able to travel further. I will be able to proclaim your gospel better if you take this away. And Jesus said, yeah, yeah, I get that you want that taken away. I am teaching you something right now. And what I am teaching you is that my power, the power of the eternal Son of God, resurrected and given all authority and power on earth and in heaven, my power is made perfect in weakness. So Jesus teaches Paul that directly, specifically. So Paul's not afraid to ask for suffering to be taken away. And we shouldn't either. We can ask those things. Read the Psalms. Take this away, God, please. But sometimes God has a deeper purpose for those things. And he taught Paul that lesson directly. And so even though Paul had his dream job taken from him, you know, preaching the gospel, going out freely and boldly proclaiming the good news, and he was good at it. He was successful. Even though he had that taken from him, he didn't consider himself benched. He didn't consider himself off 
you know, taken out of the, the plane. Instead, he became curious. You know, how does God want to use even this for, for what he wants to do in me and through me? How does God want to use this situation for his purposes? And what's cool is, you know, even beyond that reality that Paul was a, a gospel Trojan horse coming into Rome and, and the seed of the gospel eating Rome, you know, from the inside out, God also wanted Paul to have extended periods of time, extended periods of reflection, extended periods where he could write, where he could encourage from afar, where he could bless the churches that he had already started. Little did he know that these letters, these, these encouraging epistles, they'd go so much farther than his earthly life that they would become the very scripture that preachers would be preaching for thousands of years. Little did he know that. And so God tells long stories. He does things that you can't even imagine through situations that you would never want. And so we have that upside-down impact through his imprisonment in Rome. But then as he goes on in verse 14, we find it wasn't just... The, the effect on the unbelievers in Rome, but also the believers. In verse 14, it says, And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So we don't just have an upside-down impact. We have an upside-down inspiration taking place. You would think, that you see someone imprisoned for their faith and you'd be probably more scared to share your faith because seeing that, like, oh, I don't want to get, I don't want to be in prison. That's not what happened. The other believers in Rome, seeing Paul's steadfastness, his, his unwavering faith, his lack of fear in the face of persecution, through that, it gained their own boldness to fill in the gap to step into the vacancy with boldness, with confidence. So his being taken out of commission inspired the church at large to participate in greater numbers. And this is all the believers. It says most of the brothers and sisters. This isn't just the local pastors jumping in. This is everyone. Seeing what happened to Paul, they're like, well, if that's the worst that can happen, let's go. And they go. And for Paul, he didn't feel the need to be in the spotlight. You know, his, his vocation was gospel going forth. So if he saw that happening, even when he's not sort of in the front, he's cool. For him, the gospel was bigger than his personal role in making it known. In that word that they're preaching right there in verse 14, to speak the word, that's the gospel. You know, he goes on in verse 15 and says, some indeed preach Christ. Those are synonyms. Speak the word, preach Christ. This is the gospel. And so it's almost as if Paul is, is blazing this trail of suffering, removing the unknowns from the other Christians in Rome. And so now, like, okay, we know what could happen to us. And notice where their confidence stems from. It says, most of the brothers, having become confident 
in the Lord. Paul's imprisonment inspired them, but their confidence became more deeply rooted in the Lord. The more confidence we gain in our relationship with God, the more we understand how much we are loved by him, the more we understand how much we are cleansed by him, the more we understand how much we are equipped by him and led by him, the more we look to him alone for approval and the less we fear people. As your fear of God increases, your fear of people decreases. And fear, that's a broader term than you think. It's just recognizing who's in the room. This is God. Like James prayed, the creator who put the stars in the sky. His opinion counts way more than anyone else's. So as our, as our desire to, to be approved and to be commended by him, as that goes up, that fear that we have of, of upsetting people or offending people or, or people thinking ill of us, it just starts to not matter as much. But the cool thing is we will all be working on that for the rest of our lives. You know, I still have a lot of fear of people in my, in my soul. But God still lets me, God still lets me do stuff for him. And, but he's, he's increasing his own presence in my life that I want to I honor him more than I want to honor anyone else, including myself. But he's gracious enough to still let us, let us do it. In our mission, you know, at this church, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, our mission is to be a family of spirit-filled disciples who are committed to Capitol Hill in truth and love. You know, we talked about the difficulty of walking in truth and love together. And the only way to properly balance truth and love, like Jesus, is with wisdom. And just like Anna prayed just a minute ago, uh, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that if you elevate God's opinion over and above any other opinion out there or in here, then you're starting to be in a much better place to speak the truth. But you're also in a much better position to love. Because you're not loving people in order to be approved by them. It's, you're not at risk of losing someone's opinion of you. Because it's only one opinion that matters. It's, it's what uh, Justin used to preach uh, of a love, of a, it's called a disinterested love, which sounds so unromantic. A disinterested love, what does that mean? It means it's a love that stems from, fr- not from any desire to gain, because you already have it. If you already have the approval of the only person who counts, then you can love people freely, unencumbered, disinterested. And you can speak the truth as well. An unselfish love. 
And that can give us a boldness to speak the word without fear. So as we move on to verse 15, we see that Paul's imprisonment also brought out some not-so-good motives. You know, when we find that to be true, you know, in times of difficulty, true motives are revealed. In our own hearts, you know, in times of of trial uh, in communities, true, real motives come out. And this was the case here. Look at verse 15, it says, or we'll read 15 through 17. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Ouch. You know, we, we don't know exactly who these people were that were preaching Christ out of rivalry in order to afflict Paul, to cause him trouble. Um, there's obviously countless speculations. They most likely weren't uh, what we call the Judaizers uh, that we can read about in the book of Acts, book of Galatians, uh, and other books from Paul. Um, the, the Judaizers were the ones who would, would come to these Gentile churches and, and basically try to make Jews out of Gentile Christians. Oh, congrats on receiving Jesus. Now, let me just uh, show you the book of the law and like if you could just do this too, all of it. And also get circumcised if you haven't and, you know, all this stuff. Paul, he didn't like that because through Christ, the law was fulfilled. And so these people, Paul says, are preaching Christ. And apparently they were preaching a true Christ because at the end of the passage, he says, sweet, Christ is proclaimed. I'm rejoicing in that. So apparently it was, it was right doctrine. You know, it was, it was the true Christ gospel but it was out of bad motives. He's rejoicing that people are responding to their message, but he's not super glad about their motivation. They're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, insincerely, with the end goal of causing him trouble. And this original group is preaching Christ out of love and goodwill, in support of Paul and in the spirit of Paul. So right here we have just a nice little reminder you know that the first century church wasn't perfect? That there's drama? That there's issues that came up? And of course there would be. There's human beings involved. And wherever humans are, there's envy, rivalry, greed, opportunism, self-centeredness, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-importance. And that was the case there in Rome too. But for Paul... And this doesn't excuse these bad motivations. But for, as far as Paul is concerned, you know, he brings this up. But for him, their plan backfired. You know, they're thinking to, to like, rub salt in his wound by, like, jumping into the limelight and, like, make it, getting a bigger church than him. But he's like, a big church. Sweet. He grabs the popcorn and enjoys the show because the gospel is making progress. Paul sets a good example for us here. He lets God fight his PR battles. We could, we could learn a thing or two from him here. He knew that at the end of his life, he'd stand before one person. One person. 
And it is that person that Paul wanted to please above all others. And that's Paul, but what about us? You know, do, what about those of us who sometimes get caught up being motivated by envy? You know, I, I wish I could be like him. I wish I could have the, the same talents, gifts as her. I wish I could have as, many, as much influence as them or rivalry, you know. Life is a competition, right? It's a rat race. Selfish ambition. What about those of us who compare ourselves to others and we either feel despair because we could never measure up to them or we feel proud because we do and we're better. So that's in our, that's in our hearts too. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, insincere, insincerity. But there's good news, but there's bad news. If you find yourself being described more often by selfishness other than unselfishness, you're in good company. This is what the Bible calls your flesh. Paul, elsewhere in Galatians 5, he lists the qualities, the attributes of doing life according to the flesh. Guess what? (laughs) These words are right there. Envy, rivalry. So each of these words are on it. He, he also says that mo- those who make a practice of doing those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. These are the works of the flesh. The good news, though, is that when you are in Christ, as Galatians also says, you are no longer a slave to your flesh. You used to not know any better. You used to be controlled and enslaved by your flesh. But now, if you are in Christ and have the spirit of Christ, you can reject those ways. Do you always? No, but you can. You can by the power of the spirit. You're no longer a slave to your flesh. You no longer have to live your life in selfishness. Now you can give yourself away. You can give yourself away to God and he can lead you to walk in his ways. That's the good news. So there's bad news and there's good news. And when we find ourselves drifting back to those old ways of envy, of comparison, of rivalry, of selfishness, what do we need to do? Confess. God, I, I'm totally comparing myself to this person right now. I give it up. I give it up to you. You can pray along with David. Search me, O God, know my heart. Because a lot of those things, they come from deep within. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, as in interrogate me, examine me, and see if there's any wicked way in me, wicked motivation in there somewhere. And lead me in the way everlasting. And he will. So every time we drift into that, we just confess it. Empowered by his spirit, we can take the other fork in the road. Because we can. And look at these others who have pure motives. You know, how did they have them? <laughs> what was going on with them? It says, it says most of them are much more bold to speak 
Uh, Some preach Christ from envy, but others from goodwill. They do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They preached Christ from goodwill, it says. We can get a little deeper into the meaning of that word because it happens again in chapter 2, verse 13. This is one of the best verses in all of Philippians. It says, It is God who works in you for both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It says. This is the same word. Good will, good pleasure. So these believers who were preaching Christ from pure motives, they were motivated by a deep and satisfying delight in the Christ that they preach. They weren't comparing themselves to Paul. They weren't wanting to be bigger or or better than Paul. They were delighted with Christ. And so they preached. These people had truly experienced the gospel themselves and wanted others to experience it too. This deep delight in Christ superseded their own ambition, their own comparison with others, and enabled them to love and respect Paul versus seeing him as some sort of competition. That's how we have pure motives. We don't think less of others. We think more of Christ. And for Paul, it's, it's all like water off a duck's back. And so after, after he briefly describes this, this sort of emboldened preaching from the Roman believers that resulted from his chains, he says finally in verse 18, what then? What does it matter? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's sitting there in his house arrest state, unable to do the things he wants to do for the God that he loves. He looks at his chains and thinks to himself, how great is God that he can even use these chains to do so much good and he just got the tingles. This God is amazing. This God that I serve can use me being shut in to, in to advance his kingdom further than I even could if I were free. Wow. Have you ever had a moment like that? You know, where you're either in the middle of a difficult situation or maybe you're just on the other side of it and you are in awe at God for using even that for your good and his glory. Even that. As the song says, he's the only one who can. Wherever you are this morning, God wants to meet you there. You know, if, if you've recently messed up in a way that's like classic Nick, messing up again in the way that he does, If that's you this morning, you can confess your need for rescue and cleansing and and God wants to minister his forgiveness to you in that place. You don't have to sit in the mud for a certain length of time before you can come to him. You don't have to clean yourself up before you do because scripture says if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. 
Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the substitute for our sins, and not for only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. You know that word advocate? Advocate for them. Advocate for yourself. Jesus advocates for you when you sin. So if that's you, you're in a good spot right now. If you don't yet trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior in a way that has transformed your life and flipped your priorities upside down, I just want you to ask yourself for a moment, what do you do with suffering? You know, sometimes when I go through doubts, I'm, I'm tempted to just kind of live the white, sorry, not white, white picket fence, American dream life, you know, Slip of the tongue. Um, I'm tempted to just suck all the pleasure out of life that I can. But what do I do then with suffering? How does the reality of suffering in your life and in the world affect the way you view how life is supposed to work? Of course, the problem of evil and suffering in the world has been a long-debated concern for any worldview out there including Christianity. You know, a lot of people walk away from Christianity because of evil and suffering. But it's the Christian God who claims to have the power to redeem suffering. It's the Christian God that didn't just say that theoretically, but entered into human suffering himself in order to revolutionize it from the inside out. So if that's you, Ask yourself that this morning. If you're a Christian today, but you're numb to God right now, you're sort of not in the dumps, but also not really on the mountain. You're just kind of there. God wants to remind you of just how much he loves you and how much abundant life he has for you as you walk with him. True life is found in walking as close to him as humanly possible by his spirit. That's where true life is found. And if you're like Paul in a tough situation right now, there's no harm in crying out to God for rescue, for deliverance. Like I said, just read the Psalms. It's all over there. But there is also great possibility that Jesus wants to reveal to you some aspect of his goodness that you couldn't know if things were all hunky-dory. There's a great possibility that he wants to teach you something about himself while you're in this time. And he's the only God who can do that. He's the only God that can flip situations, difficulties, trials on their head like that. Be curious. Interrogate it. Invite God to show up in the midst of it and see what he does. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would empower your children here, all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to have gospel priorities, but not as a tagline, but because the gospel, which means good news, has reintroduced that good news to us afresh. Lord, teach us again the reality of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it applies 
to our relationships today, how it applies to our situation today, how it applies to our circumstances right now. Thank you, Lord God, that you are so powerful, so sovereign, that you can be intimately involved with almost 8 billion people simultaneously. And it's like we're the only ones in the world. I pray that for those who need to know that they are loved by you dearly and preciously, I pray that you would minister to them during this time. I pray that your spirit would speak to them words of comfort and love. For those who need to resurrender themselves to you, who have just been walking their, their own path of destruction, I pray that you'd assist them, empower them by your spirit to just hand things over, hand you the reins, open up their hands, be open-handed to receive what you have for them. We can't do it without you. So we invite your Holy Spirit to be present with us right now as we worship you, as we seek to draw near to you. In Jesus' name.